The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. It's minutes after 4 a.m. in San Antonio, Texas, on April 19, 1992, Easter Sunday. Outside of a stop-and-go convenience store on 36th Street, the blue lights of police cars flash in the darkness. Officers jump out of their vehicles and rush inside. They're responding to a call from another cop. He was on patrol in this area tonight when he stumbled upon a distressing scene, a scene which he now leads his colleagues to. Together, officers burst through the double doors of the convenience store, guns raised in their hands. The first cop beckons them to follow him as he hurries around the shelves and through the aisles to the back of the shop. Then, with the fluorescent lights flickering above him, he stops in his tracks. The other officers follow the direction of his gaze and quickly come to a stop, too. There, behind the glass door of a walk-in beer cooler, is a sight so awful that it takes the air from their lungs. Sprawled out across numerous boxes and crates of beer is a young woman's body. Her eyes are open but sightless and she's covered in blood from multiple stab wounds. The officers are horrified. Distress and panic rising in his voice, the cop who called it in explains what little he knows. He tells his colleagues that he had been in the store earlier that evening, chatting to the victim, who worked as a store clerk before being called away on another job. He returned a few hours later to find this gruesome sight. With a shudder, he realizes that he was one of the last people to see her alive. But who would want to hurt this young woman, and why? In an attempt to answer these questions, officers take a look around the store in the hope of finding some clues. Then after just a few minutes, it becomes obvious. When they pull the cash register open, they find that it's completely empty. This was clearly a robbery, one that ended in murder. But frustratingly, the clues end here, for now at least. Whoever it was took care not to leave behind weapons, clothing, or even fingerprints. Worse still, there are no security cameras or witnesses. The person responsible has disappeared without a trace. With no idea as to who the killer is or how their robbery escalated to murder, officers are filled with a sense of dread. They know it's going to be a long, uphill battle to find this poor woman's killer and bring them to justice. And in that time, who knows what other crimes they'll commit. But what police don't know yet is that almost two decades will pass until this horrific murder is finally put to bed. The answers, when they eventually surface, will come from a haunting deathbed confession. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a vicious killer, of the words he spoke seconds before dying, 
It's about a boy abused by his father who grew up to be a violent man and the lawless life he led. It's about a young mother who was murdered while she slept, a police force determined to bring the killer to justice, and a deathbed confession which might finally bring a grieving family the answers they've waited for for years. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Following the murder at the convenience store on Easter Sunday, 1992, the San Antonio Police Department set about identifying the victim. They discover that the woman's name was Melissa Morales. She was a freshman at college where she'd been studying psychology and worked part-time at the store to support herself. Tragically, she was just 19 years old when she died. But while police are able to learn about the victim, they struggle to find anything out about the murderer. They have no leads and no suspects. Devastated by Melissa's death and frustrated by the slow pace of the investigation, the Morales family take matters into their own hands. They launch a campaign to make it state law that all convenience stores have security cameras fitted. Their campaign is popular. You see, this isn't the first armed robbery in San Antonio, not by a long shot. Recently, robberies have been on the rise, getting bloodier and more brutal each time. Police know of one man who may be responsible for some of these thefts, but there's no evidence to suggest he's guilty of murder too. So they discard him as a suspect. However, it can't be denied that this man is a strange, disturbed individual, one which the police maybe shouldn't be so hasty to forget. His name is Luis Salazar, and he has an extensive history of violent crime. Is it possible that Salazar was also involved in the murder of Melissa? To answer this question, we'll need to delve into his dark history to see exactly what sort of man Salazar really is. 
Luis Cervantes Salazar is born in Eastland County, Texas on August 31st, 1970. He lives with his parents and two siblings, a younger brother and sister. Salazar's father is a musician who plays in a band to earn his living. But while he has a love and talent for music, he doesn't show this kind of passion for parenting. In contrast, he's strict and controlling with his children. Worse still, he becomes extremely violent when drunk. Salazar and his siblings learn to play musical instruments at a young age. But they're beaten by their father if they don't play correctly, often being whipped until they bleed by a piece of garden hose. Along with his brother and sister, Salazar is forced to spend most evenings playing music with his father in local clubs. The hours are long and they rarely return home until early the next morning. Unsurprisingly, the children are tired at school and struggle to keep up with their studies. Luis Salazar in particular. As a result, he develops a hatred for education and is reluctant to learn. As the children grow into teenagers, the violence in their home escalates. When their father attacks their mother in drunken rages, the boys instinctively rush to protect her, taking the full force of their father's anger. For now, the young Luis Salazar is a tragic victim of abuse, one who tries to protect those he loves. However, as he gets older and enters adulthood, he'll find it increasingly difficult to separate himself from the aggression that surrounds him. It's now 1988 and Luis Salazar is 18 years old. He's living with his family in a truck, dealing drugs to earn money and using to get high. At five foot five, Salazar is an intimidating figure. His deep brown eyes stare menacingly from beneath his shaven black hair. He has a muscular athletic build as though ready to take on anyone and anything. Not that he has particularly great ambitions though, Salazar has long abandoned any dreams his father had of him becoming a musician. Instead, he's embarked on a life of crime. Perhaps due to his aggressive upbringing, Salazar has started using violence to steal. He's not afraid to engage in a physical fight with anyone who stands between him and money. On January 31st, 1988, Salazar carries out his first armed robbery. Covering his face with a ski mask, he strides into a local convenience store in San Antonio. He points a handgun at the terrified young store clerk and demands all the money from the cash register, including the notes under the tray. Once the money has been handed over, Salazar turns on his heel and flees. He doesn't seem to worry that he's left behind two witnesses who will doubtless give his description to the police. In fact, Salazar is so encouraged by the success of this first armed robbery that he commits three more in the following weeks. He terrorizes a handful of stores in San Antonio, threatening customers and workers with his gun or knife. But Salazar is careless. Each time he leaves behind a string of witnesses. And it's not long until police know exactly who he is. He's arrested in the spring of 1988 and at his trial on December 5th, almost a year after his first attack, he's charged with four counts of aggravated robbery. In his defense, Salazar claims that he committed these crimes because his father is ill and he needs the money for the medical expenses. 
Whether or not this is true, the jury doesn't believe him and files a guilty verdict. But surprisingly, the judge hands him an extremely lenient sentence, two years probation and no prison time. Unbeknown to the judge, this punishment will not go far enough. He has no idea just how dangerous Salazar is. And in the months that follow, everyone in San Antonio will wish that Salazar had been locked away for years. It's now 1991, and 21-year-old Luis Salazar has continued wreaking havoc on San Antonio with his lawlessness. But as he's developed, so too have his crimes. They're now not only dangerous and violent, but twisted and sinister. At one point during the year, Salazar targets an 18-year-old high school student who attends his former school. He knows she has learning difficulties and believes this makes her vulnerable. Somehow, Salazar gets the girl's phone number and calls her one night. It's the evening before her class is due to go on a field trip to the mall. Turning on the charm as best as he can, Salazar urges her not to go and promises he'll take her out on a date instead. Maybe the young woman is flattered by his attention, or perhaps she doesn't feel as though she can say no. So without telling her mother or her teacher, and with no idea the type of person Salazar really is, she cuts class the next day and meets him. But Salazar doesn't take her out for lunch, nor does he take her on a date. Instead, he drives her a few blocks to his house and takes her into the bedroom. Sometime later, he drops her back at school. When the girl returns, staff can see something is terribly wrong. She's distracted and distressed, unable to focus on anything. After talking with her, they learn that she's been sexually assaulted, so they call her mother and then the police. Summoning up all the courage she can muster, the girl describes Salazar, and police believe they know exactly who she's talking about. When they show her a series of mugshots, she quickly points to the photo of Salazar and swears that he was her attacker. That same day, 21-year-old Luis Salazar is arrested and charged with sexual assault. It's a serious felony to be charged with and can, in certain cases, result in life imprisonment. Considering that Salazar already has a criminal history, this is the kind of punishment you might expect. However, during his trial, Salazar pleads guilty to a lesser crime, misdemeanor and bodily harm. The jury agrees with his plea and finds him guilty. Once again, though, his sentence is hardly a punishment. Unbelievably, he's not given a single day behind bars. Salazar receives two years probation, the same sentence he was given for robbing the string of convenience stores four years earlier. At hearing this miscarriage of justice, the family of the young woman are outraged. It's nowhere near enough of a punishment for his heinous crime. To them and many others in San Antonio, it seems as though Salazar is getting away with all sorts of awful crimes. First armed robberies, and now sexual assault. How many more lives will he ruin before it all stops?
Hi, it's Sarah Turney from the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. In honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, we've been showcasing a series of impactful stories we think you should hear. This week, I'm teaming up with the Cold Cases podcast to examine one of the most high-profile cases in U.S. history, the boy in the box. For nearly 70 years, people all over the country wondered, who is America's unknown child? How did he die? And where is his family? A forensic breakthrough would ultimately tell us his name, Joseph Augustus Sorelli. But as you'll come to find out, that was just one piece of the mystery. Catch this incredible episode this Thursday on Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's now 1997. Despite his ongoing criminal activity and frequent run-ins with the law, 27-year-old Luis Salazar has managed to find himself a wife. The two live in his mother-in-law's house in Future Street, San Antonio, with their young children. Next door at number 250 live 28-year-old Martha Sanchez and her husband, Oscar Ochoa. They have two kids together, a two-year-old daughter and a four-month-old son. Also living with them is Martha's son, Eric, from a previous relationship, who's 10 years old. At first, Martha and her family are friendly to their neighbors. Oscar even helps Salazar get a job at their local Super Kmart branch. However, it isn't long before things start to turn sour. Salazar shows very little respect for Oscar and makes no secret of the fact that he's attracted to Martha. He repeatedly talks about Martha's physical appearance, making lewd remarks about her lips and her hair. And it doesn't stop there. He also makes passes at her. Over time, Martha and Oscar start to feel uncomfortable around their neighbor. They try to distance themselves from him, worried about what his true intentions really are. As it turns out, they're right to be anxious. One day in 1997, while Oscar is out at work, Salazar calls to see Martha at her house. As expected, she's alone with the children. When she sees Salazar at her door, Martha's heart must sink. Although she puts on a friendly face and greets him politely, she's desperate to get rid of him as soon as she can. Salazar grins at Martha and tells her he'd like to borrow some sugar, a request which seems innocent enough. So, relieved that this is all he wants, Martha says she'll fetch some from the kitchen. But this is not the answer Salazar's after. He looks Martha up and down. Then, with a greedy smile, he remarks, Not that kind of sugar. Martha doesn't have to ask him what he means. Insulted and terrified, she demands that he leave at once. With a mocking smirk, Salazar turns on his heel and jogs back to his own house just yards away. When Oscar returns home from work later that afternoon, Martha tells him what happened. 
Furious that Salazar dared treat his wife like this, Oscar marches over to his neighbor's house and confronts him. He warns Salazar to keep away from Martha and his family. If he ever sees him near his house again, there'll be hell to pay. But Salazar has never been one for following rules. The weeks pass and Martha's fear of Salazar grows. Unaffected by Oscar's threat, he started calling late at night, begging for her company. Martha is so afraid that she can't bear to stay at home alone. Whenever her husband works a night shift, she asks her niece to stay with her. Her anxiety is reaching a boiling point. She's struggling to cope with the constant threat of her intimidating neighbor. And then, in September 1997, Martha Sanchez can finally breathe a sigh of relief. Salazar moves out of Future Street and takes up residence in 122 Ashland. It's not that far away, but at least they won't be neighbors anymore. And in a large town like San Antonio, there's a good chance Martha will never see Salazar again. She can only pray that this relief will last. It's minutes after midnight on October 11th, 1997, six weeks since Salazar left Future Street. Martha Sanchez is home alone looking after her children. Without the crushing fear of her neighbor, she's relaxed in her house and doesn't feel the need to ask her niece to come over. Martha checks on her two-year-old daughter who's fast asleep in her bed and her baby boy who's sleeping peacefully in the cot in the same room. Her eldest son, Eric, is getting ready for bed in his own room next door. As usual, when he's working the night shift, Martha's husband, Oscar, calls her at half past midnight. The two chat pleasantly about the day, and he asks about the children. Unbeknown to either of them, it will be the last time they ever speak to each other. After saying goodnight to Oscar, Martha heads upstairs to bed and crawls in next to her daughter. She's tired and sleep takes her immediately, but her night is far from peaceful. Just hours before dawn, Martha is awakened to a loud noise. She looks out of the window and sees that it's still dark, too dark for Oscar to be returning from work. Her senses on high alert, Martha listens carefully, eyes wide open, but blind in the darkness. Then she hears a door creak open and light pours into her bedroom. Standing in the doorway is a figure she knows all too well. It's Luis Salazar, and he's holding a knife. Martha's screams wake up the household, and 10-year-old Eric jumps from his bed. Still in his pajamas, his eyes half-closed with sleep, he sprints into his mother's room. Eric tries to pull Salazar away from his mother, tugging at his clothes and seizing his arms but then he falls to the floor in pain. Salazar has stabbed him in the chest. As he struggles to get back onto his feet, Eric's mother shouts at him to go get help. In a blind panic, he tears from the room and runs for his life. Seconds before dawn, a resident of Future Street is woken up by a loud knock on their front door. When they open it, they see 10-year-old Eric standing there. He screams something incoherent about an old neighbor called Salazar, his mother, and a knife attack. Then, he collapses on the doorstep. After scooping Eric up and dialing 911, 
the neighbor rushes into her daughter's room and wakes her boyfriend. She instructs him to go over to Martha's house immediately and see what's going on. The boyfriend returns some minutes later, carrying Martha's two youngest children in his arms. The two-year-old daughter is covered in blood, but it is not hers. It's her mother's. Once the boyfriend has carefully put the babies to bed, he stares at his girlfriend in horror. Then, in a voice thick with emotion, he explains that there's nothing he could do for Martha Sanchez. When he found her, she was already dead. The sun is coming up over Future Street as the police arrive at the crime scene. Scores of detectives hurry out of their cars, coding the neighborhood in police tape and warning passersby to stay away. Then, they get to work hunting for clues. At the front of Martha's house, they discover a milk crate below a window which has been left open. This is obviously how the attacker got in. Police also notice that the telephone lines to the house have been cut, something which would have prevented Martha from calling for help. With a chilling realization, police conclude that this was a planned attack. Next, detectives follow a trail of muddy footprints from the window, through the kitchen, and finally into Martha's bedroom. There, her body lies on the floor, a knife discarded near her head. Later that day, 10-year-old Eric is taken by ambulance to University Hospital San Antonio. Thankfully, his wounds are superficial and there's no lasting physical damage. From his hospital bed, he tells police exactly what happened, that he awoke to his mother's screams and rushed to her room to help. He claims to have heard her shout. Luis, why are you doing this? Leave me alone. The name and appearance of the man were familiar to Eric. He tells police it was his old neighbor, Luis Salazar. Now, with the witness testimony and evidence of a premeditated murder, all police need to do is catch the killer. As it turns out, they don't have to work very hard to locate Salazar. Later that day, Salazar himself calls 911 and informs the operator that he awoke with blood on his hands and is afraid he may have harmed someone. Somewhat shamefully, he admits he has no recollection of any more details. Police officers trace the call and soon find Salazar at a relative's house. He's placed in handcuffs and thrown in the back of a squad car. As he's driven away, he must be all too aware of the seriousness of his situation. He could be charged with the first-degree murder of Martha Sanchez. And in a town like San Antonio, this felony could send him straight to death row. Luis Salazar's trial begins almost one year after his arrest, in September 1998, at the Bexar County Court. Although Salazar turned himself into police and showed no resistance at the arrest, he's changed his plea in the past few months. Now, he's pleading guilty to manslaughter instead of murder, under the claim that he acted out of self-defense. He's also pleading not guilty to sexual abuse, a charge which was added when coroners examined Martha Sanchez's body. In front of a packed courtroom, Salazar makes his case. He explains that on the night of the murder, he was at a friend's house with his brother, 
They drank beer, smoked marijuana, and snorted cocaine. Sometime after 3 a.m., he decided to go to his old home in Future Street, which his mother-in-law still owned. The reason being, he needed to pick up some personal belongings which he'd left behind. Salazar tells the jury that, inebriated by the drink and drugs, he mistakenly went to Martha's house, number 250, instead of his mother-in-law's, number 254. An easy mistake to make, he claims. Because he had no key, he decided to climb in through a window. Salazar claims that once inside, he heard an alarming noise. Believing it to be an intruder, he grabbed a knife from the kitchen in order to defend himself. Salazar tells the court that he bumped into someone in the hallway. Terrified that they were trying to attack him or rob his home, he stabbed them with a knife. As he was doing this, he felt someone else grab him from behind. Thinking it was a gang of thieves, he turned on the second person with a knife. Salazar testifies that it was only when he heard a woman cry, Run, Eric! that he realized he was in the wrong house. After hearing this, he dropped the knife and left. Salazar's story rests on the notion of self-defense. His entire case is based on the claim that he truly believed he was in his mother-in-law's house and he thought he was being attacked by an intruder. If the jury believes this story, then he will be cleared of the first-degree murder charge. Unfortunately, though, for Salazar, the prosecution has a strong case against him. First, police insist that the murder was premeditated due to the cut phone lines, the crate below the open window, and the trail of muddy footprints leading directly into Martha Sanchez's room. What's more, the autopsy report shows that Martha was sexually assaulted before she was killed. Although Salazar fiercely denies this allegation, the court hears how he was physically attracted to her and made repeated passes at her. And of course, witness testimony from Eric confirms that Salazar was the attacker. Anyone listening to the events leading to Martha Sanchez's murder could not fail to be horrified. To many, it's clear that Salazar is a sexual predator and a cold-blooded killer. But it's now up to the jury to decide if he's guilty and what his punishment will be, if any. After all, for those who know of Salazar's reputation, they're all too aware that he's escaped justice numerous times before. Will he manage to evade it once again? Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In October 1998, 
the jury reaches a verdict. Luis Salazar is found guilty of the attempted sexual assault of Martha Sanchez, as well as her first-degree murder. He receives a life sentence and will be put to death. The reaction in the courtroom is electric. There's an outpouring of gratitude and relief that this monster will finally be punished for his terrible crime. Although nothing can bring Martha Sanchez back, there is at least a strong sense that justice has been served. And it doesn't stop there. After his capital murder trial, Salazar is tried and convicted of two counts of aggravated robbery from 1988. He's found guilty of both and receives two additional life sentences. One of Salazar's lawyers asks the court to spare his life because he endured a difficult and abusive childhood. But the jury ignores this plea for compassion. They don't believe a cold-blooded killer deserves any mercy. Years pass and Luis Salazar remains on death row awaiting his execution date. During this time, his lawyers submit a number of appeals to state and federal court in an attempt to overturn his death sentence. But all of them are rejected. Finally, in 2001, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirms the conviction. Salazar's death by lethal injection is scheduled for March 11, 2009, at the Walls Correctional Facility in Huntsville, Texas. Following this decision, the years pass painfully quickly for Salazar, the end of each bringing him closer to his death. In an attempt to occupy his mind, and find a meaning to the days he has left, he turns to religion. Salazar becomes friendly with a spiritual counselor and embraces Christianity. He perhaps hopes that his newfound God will have mercy on him and save him from execution. But it's not to be. Eventually, the nine years of waiting are up. And on March 11, 2009, 38-year-old Salazar's day of death arrives. He eats his final meal of pizza, a cheeseburger, fish, and french fries in silence. Then, he's led away from the prison dining room and into a small, dark chamber. With his spiritual counselor by his side, he walks slowly to the gurney and doesn't even flinch as doctors strap him in, binding his arms to his side. On the other side of the glass, Salazar can see a few witnesses. He doesn't recognize many, but one stands out. It's Eric, the 10-year-old boy he stabbed while he was killing Martha Sanchez in 1997. But Eric is no longer an innocent child. As he stares through the glass, Salazar can see that he's grown into a man. Although Salazar clearly recognizes Eric, he doesn't acknowledge his presence, nor does he acknowledge the crime that's brought Eric here today. When asked to give his final words, Salazar doesn't mention Martha Sanchez's name. Instead, he thanks friends and relatives for their companionship over the years and expresses love for his mother, brothers, sister, and his children. He says, I love my children. I miss them. I will take them with me in my heart. Thanks to everyone praying for me. Seconds later, the lethal drugs are administered. As they begin to flow through his veins, he recites the Lord's Prayer and asks Jesus to forgive his sins. Then, with a chilling grin, he adds that he wants forgiveness only for, quote, 
the ones I can remember. Salazar is pronounced dead at 6.20 p.m. After witnessing the execution of Luis Salazar, Martha Sanchez's family reflects. Finally, over a decade since he tore their lives apart, it seems they've been able to get some closure from his death. However, they're deeply disappointed that he showed no remorse for the terrible crime he committed. He didn't even acknowledge it. Robert, Martha Sanchez's brother, says, I would have thought any person in their right mind, any person with a heart, would have some type of feeling or remorse towards us. But that didn't seem to take place. On watching Salazar die, Eric, Martha's eldest son, admits that it wasn't difficult and claims he was even looking forward to it. But Eric's life has been far from easy. One of his lawyers explains that although the wounds from Salazar's knife were superficial, the emotional and psychological scars have been lasting. He says of Eric, it kind of tore his life apart. He had a few bumps in the road. But the story of Luis Salazar doesn't end with his death, nor does it end with Martha Sanchez's family. As it turns out, the words he spoke in the chamber were not the only ones he uttered on the day of his death. In fact, Salazar made a deathbed confession one which may not bring much comfort to Martha's family, but will instead console another, the family of one of Salazar's earliest victims. In the days after Salazar's execution, his spiritual counselor asks to meet with lawyers. He claims that one hour before his death, he and Salazar had a 20-minute conversation. During this chat, Salazar made a deathbed confession, which his counselor now believes might help shed light on an old case. Better yet, the confession was recorded. The spiritual counselor explains that Salazar admitted to a number of crimes which he hadn't been found guilty of, including a murder. Salazar's deathbed confession claims that he killed a young woman in San Antonio in 1992. The woman was a 19-year-old shop assistant who worked at a local stop-and-go convenience store. According to his own words, he killed the woman by stabbing her multiple times before leaving her body in a beer fridge. When lawyers and police hear this confession, a series of haunting memories come flooding back. They remember this brutal case all too well the murder of 19-year-old Melissa Morales on Easter Sunday, 1992. At the time, they had no suspects or leads, and the case eventually went cold. But now, when police listen to the recorded deathbed confession, they believe they might finally be able to close it. Using transcripts from Salazar's deathbed confession, San Antonio police launch an investigation into the 17-year-old crime after reassessing the facts, they conclude that it's extremely likely that Salazar was Melissa Morales' killer. There were details related to the crime that only he would have known, Police Chief William McManus explains. The individual who murdered Melissa was a very, very bad person, McManus continues. He had done a lot of things to a lot of people, but one thing is for certain, that this individual will not be able to hurt anyone anymore after this. Finally, after almost two decades, the murder of Melissa Morales 
is closed. But the deathbed confession of Luis Salazar is, in many ways, bittersweet. On the one hand, it provided the key to an old cold case and gave Melissa Morales' family the closure they so deserved, but they never got to see him punished for what he did to their daughter. On the other hand, his confession neglects to mention Martha Sanchez. While her family was able to see her killer punished, they never received an apology. It seems as though Salazar felt no remorse for this crime. It's a frustrating end to such a tragic case. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Madame Jeanne Dubarry, the controversial mistress of King Louis XV. Jeanne starts life in Paris as a sex worker, but when she catches the eye of the king, she's quickly welcomed into the royal court. However, the good times won't last, and as revolution spreads through France, royalists and aristocrats start fearing for their lives. One by one, they're sent to the guillotine. So when Jeanne finds herself at the center of a scandal, an elaborate jewelry heist, it looks as though she too will be sent to her death. But Jeanne has a plan, one which she hopes will save her life. Will a revelation given at the 11th hour reverse her fortunes? Or will her words become her deathbed confession? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 